Today's reading comes from Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign you, you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear." And she said, According to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. This is the word of the Lord. We're continuing today with our theme that we're calling One Story. We're looking at God's plan in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It's so important to grasp the fact that the Old and New Testaments comprise one unified whole. We are living in a time when many people, including many uh, pastors, want to discard or diminish parts of Scripture, particularly those parts of Scripture that are at odds with what we'd like to believe, what we want to believe. But Jesus, in his approach to Scripture, treated 
all of what we know as the Old Testament as, in his words, the word of God, which cannot be broken. And so we're taking a step back to look at the entirety of Scripture and asking the question, how does this part of Scripture contribute to God's great plan of redemption for his people? Now, if you're just joining us, let me give you a a bit of a review on where we've been thus far. So far this year, the first two months of the year, we've looked at what are commonly called the books of the law. The books of the law. Sometimes these first five books of the Bible are called the Torah. That's a Jewish word that means instruction. The the Greek word for the first five books is Pentateuch, which literally means five scrolls. These five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are attributed to Moses as their author, and sometimes they're simply called the law, this section of Scripture. What we saw in the book of Genesis was, of course, the creation of all things by God. Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, all that is. Then we saw the fall of Adam and Eve, their fall into sin, Uh, the results of that sin beginning to be worked out in the human race, and then God's call of a man named Abraham to whom he gave a particular promise. The New Testament refers to this promise as the gospel that through him, through his descendants, ultimately all the nations of the world would be blessed. So the descendants of Abraham are being formed into a people, the Hebrews, the Israelites. In the book of Exodus, we find them in bondage and slavery under Pharaoh, and God sends a deliverer, uh, Moses, who becomes really the key figure in these five books of the law. Moses is the one who leads the people out of their bondage and Egypt, and Moses becomes the great lawgiver, such that the name of Moses is almost synonymous with the law of God. He's the one, for example, to whom God gave the Ten Commandments. In the book of Leviticus, we see the people of God being formed particularly into a worshiping community. They're called to holiness. They're given priests who offer sacrifices on their behalf. And then in the book of Numbers, because of the continued rebelliousness of God's people, the Israelites, we find them in the midst of these wilderness wanderings, and even in their rebellion against God, we see these glimpses of God's provision and his mercy. For example, when they get water out of a rock, when they need healing, and Moses puts a Uh, makes a brass serpent, puts it on a pole. And these very unusual things we saw in a beautiful way are pointing forward to the coming of Jesus Christ who will provide our salvation, who provides living water. And then last week, Pastor Andrew took us through the book of Deuteronomy, which uh, literally means the second law giving this rehearsal of the law of God as the people are being prepared to enter the promised land. And so here we we end at the end of Deuteronomy with Moses' death. Moses not being the one to take the people into the promised land, but bringing them right up to that point. The one who will take the people into the promised land is Joshua. And now we enter what are commonly called the historical books from Joshua to the book of Esther. The name Joshua is significant. As you'll see on the screen, the name Joshua means the Lord is salvation. Uh, 
Yeshua. The Greek form of the name is Jesus. Yeshua. Jesus. The Lord is salvation. And whereas Moses is associated with the law and brings the people to the very point of entry into the promised land, Moses could not take them there. It was Yeshua, Joshua, who'd take them into the promised land. Maybe it's not stretching things too far to say that the law of God prepares us from, for the promised land, the ultimate rest and salvation of God's people, but the law could never take us there. Only Jesus can do that. The law prepares us for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The book of Joshua now presents the Israelites beginning to possess the promised land. It's a book with a lot of conflict and warfare and a good amount of bloodshed. As the Israelites began to dispossess the Canaanite people who were worshipers of idols and other really, really horrible practices, and for all that, though, the book begins with the most beautiful picture of the mercy of God for even a Canaanite, a Canaanite prostitute who would believe in the one true God. And in the account that Maddie read a moment ago of Rahab the prostitute, we see beautiful truths. The first is that Apparently, many people in Jericho, and Jericho was the place, if you've read the Bible before, they ultimately would march around the walls and the walls would fall. Uh, but, the, but at this point, the spies have just been sent uh, by Joshua to spy out Jericho. And apparently, many in Jericho had heard of God's power. They've heard of the great miracles he's done for the Hebrew people, the parting of the Red Sea, for example. But Rahab had not only heard, she believed. And again, Rahab says, we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. As soon as we heard of these things, she says, our hearts melted. Now, apparently many had heard of what God had done in Jericho, but Rahab was the one who not only heard, but believed. In verse 9 of chapter 2, Rahab says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. Rahab had not only heard, she had believed in the one true God. You know, there is a very big difference in simply hearing about and even believing what you hear about God and in having personal faith in that God which is translated to actions. And in Rahab, we see this heart change, this personal belief in the true and living God. And because of that, Rahab acted upon her faith in God, as we read in these next verses that you'll see on the screen. If you guys, there you go, we'll advance that. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who've come to you, entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. So apparently word got to the king of Jericho that the spies had come into Jericho, and they'd gone to, well, the home of the prostitute, Rahab. 
But the woman had taken the two men and hid them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I did not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you shall overtake them. Well, Rahab's going to be commended for what she does here. But she lied, didn't she? She, she lied to the king. No, I didn't, I didn't see them. They left. Pursue them and you'll get them. But she had hid them to protect them. Now, that raises a little bit of an ethical question, doesn't it, for you at all? She's going to be commended for this, but she actually lied. Is that a problem? Moses said in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt bear false witness. So this is a good question for you to take to your small group leaders this week. When you go to your small groups, and here's what I want to recommend if they cannot answer this question. David Holcomb is being ordained this evening at 6 o'clock right here in the sanctuary, and you're all invited to, to, to come to this. David has just finished seminary with stellar grades. And, I mean, he knows, he knows his stuff. He can answer the hard questions. So what I want to suggest on the day of his ordination is that you text, you email, or you call David Holcomb, and you ask four questions. Number one, was it okay to lie in this case? Number two, if so, why was it okay to lie? Number three, is it ever right for us to lie? And if so, when is it right for us to lie? And if you'll, you'll send those questions to David... He'll be excited about that since he's just being ordained tonight. Now, Rahab acted upon her faith in God. And as we'll see a little bit later, this is extremely important. She goes to the spies whom she has hidden, whose lives she has saved, and says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you'll save alive my father, my mother, my brother, brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. She knows they're going to take Jericho. And she says, because I've saved your lives, now give me a sign. You're going to protect me and not only me, but my whole house when you come. And so they tell her what to do. They tell her to put the, the scarlet cord in her window, and she and her home will be spared. Rahab is going to become an important example for us in the pages of the New Testament, an example of faith with corresponding actions. Her faith in the one true God led her to protect the Hebrew, the Israelite spies. And then we see Rahab and her household were saved from death by her faithful actions. If we skipped ahead to the sixth chapter of Joshua, in the 25th verse, we would read these words. But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, that is her extended family, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Not only were she and her household saved, but Rahab became part of the community of Israel. And ultimately, she will be made an example of genuine faith for us. See this verse in the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 31. Hebrews chapter 11 is remarkable because it reflects back on these key people in the Old Testament and the way they lived by faith and the way their faith is recorded as an example. Their faith 
becomes examples for you and me. And included with great people like Abraham and Moses, we find Rahab, Rahab the prostitute. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. By faith, she acted. By faith, she acted. And then in the New Testament book of James, where the Apostle James is really making the case that genuine faith, genuine faith always translates to some expression of faith, some demonstration of faith. Faith has works that become evident, that show that faith is genuine. And he uses two people as examples of faith. The first is Abraham. Abraham is the great hero the one through whom all of this starts with forming a special people to whom the Messiah would come, the one whose name is really synonymous with faith, Abraham. The second, another person James uses, is Rahab. Rahab the prostitute. After speaking about Abraham, he says, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works. And to be justified means to be declared, declared righteous by God. Was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from words is dead. What does James mean here? If we take it in his larger context of teaching in James chapter 2, we see what, he's, what he is uh, saying is simply that she was justified, declared righteous by God, by her faith, yes, but it was faith expressed in works. We're saved by grace through faith alone, but as has been said, but saving faith is never alone. And it leads us to the question, how were Rahab and other people in the Old Testament saved? How were they saved? And the answer is, by grace through faith. But isn't that the same way that we're saved? By grace, by the grace of God, through faith? Yes, it is. No one, no one in the pages of Scripture was saved by perfectly keeping the works of the law. The Apostle Paul would later say, by, say, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. No one. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. He went on to say, but now the righteousness of God has been demonstrated apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets testify to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. But in the Old Testament, those people had never even heard of Jesus Christ. God accounted genuine faith in the hearts of these Old Testament believers. He accounted their faith as righteousness. They essentially, their faith essentially looked ahead. Looked ahead to the provision of Jesus Christ on the cross as our faith looks back to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. In each case, People are saved, Old and New Testament. 
not by being perfect adherents to the law of God. No one can do it. Even the great apostle Paul, who knew the law so well, no one, all have sinned, he said, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So will we see Abraham and Moses and, yes, Rahab in heaven? Absolutely. They're listed as examples of faith for us. Certainly they didn't see the whole picture. They didn't have the knowledge of God's saving grace through Jesus Christ. They were not aware that the Son of God would leave heaven and be born as a baby and die on a cross and bear the judgment for our sins upon himself. Yet God accounted their faith in him, their faith expressed even in their actions as righteousness. In the same way for you and me, as we have the knowledge of Jesus and what the Son of God has come to do for us, we acknowledge our sin, we put our faith in him. And God considers us, despite our sins, despite our violations of his law, righteous in his sight, justified, forgiven, made righteous. In both Old and New Testament times, genuine faith is expressed in actions. Faith that is, is expressed in, in lives of devotion to the one true God. And Rahab's faith not only resulted in the salvation of her household from death, from destruction, but it resulted in something else. Her faith resulted in her becoming a part of God's one-story plan. Salvation is more than just the forgiveness of our sins in eternal life with God. It certainly is that, and that, I think, is most important. But in salvation, in justification, we are also adopted by God, adopted into his family, and given places of significance in his kingdom. It's kind of like being adopted into a, to, to a physical family and then being given a key role in the family business. Every person brought into the kingdom of God becomes part of his kingdom and is given work to do for God, given a role to fulfill. Every one of us here who has genuine faith in Jesus Christ has a specific role to fulfill. The Apostle Paul says it this way, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, if you're saved by grace through faith, you also have good works that have been prepared for you to do. You have a purpose in life. You have a role to fulfill, a significant role in God's kingdom. Rahab not only was spared from destruction, she became a part of God's one-story plan. And when we move to the New Testament, the very first verses of the first book, the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, we read something that I think is just beautiful. I'm going to read the first six verses. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So on down the line from Abraham was this man named Salmon. He married this woman named Rahab, and yes, commentators indicate this is the very same Rahab that we're studying about in the book of Joshua, based on the, the time that all this happened, Salmon marries this man who'd come to live among the Israelites, Rahab, who'd had faith in the one true God, the former prostitute who'd now lived among the Israelites, and they were married, and they had a little boy, and their son's name was Boaz. Boaz and his wife would have a son named Obed. Obed would have a son named Jesse, and Jesse would have a son named David the king. That means that Rahab, the former prostitute, was the great-great-grandmother of the greatest king that Israel ever knew, King David. The Canaanite, the non-Jew, the one called out from idol worshipers who heard and had faith in the one true God, whose faith was expressed in works, she's the great-great-grandmother of the great King David and ultimately in the lineage of David's greater son, the one whom David would call Lord Jesus Christ. So what does all this show us? First of all, it shows God great, God's great mercy for sinners. This is a former prostitute who gets a most honored role to be placed into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Secondly, shows us this. It shows us that God's salvation is for people of all nations. Again, Rahab was a Canaanite. And if you recall, when we saw the genealogy a moment ago, uh, Rahab and Salmon had a son named Boaz. Any of you recognize the name Boaz from reading the Old Testament? If you read the book of Ruth, Ruth marries this man, Boaz. Now, there's another great truth here. Ruth, likewise, listed in the genealogy of Jesus, was not a Jew. She was not an Israelite. She was a Moabite from the land of Moab. People with whom the Israelites had at one point been been at war. She's brought in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. What is all this showing us? It's showing us that God's salvation is for people of all nations. You know, when the Gospel of Matthew was written, it would have been a very unusual thing to include the names of women in a Jewish genealogy. Typically, it would have been the male names included in the genealogy. But here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Matthew specifically including for us Rahab. Ruth, 
she who had been the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. If you know that story in the Old Testament, it's not a real pleasant story either. What is God saying? It's working all these things together to demonstrate in the coming of Jesus great, great mercy for those who have sinned, for those who have worshipped idols previously, for people of all the nations of the world. The gospel is for all. And furthermore, to show that real faith is demonstrated by actions. Rahab, along with Abraham, is the one who becomes an example in the book of James of faith. That faith without works is dead. Real faith, genuine faith, is revealed in a life of devotion to Jesus Christ. And we find this right in the book of Joshua. One of the expressions of our faith, one of the way that genuine faith is expressed, and one of the ways we express our faith together is by celebrating what we call communion. We call it communion because it's both communion with the Lord and communion with one another. We also call it the Lord's Supper. You may have heard it called the Eucharist in, a, in another church tradition. But it's a time for believers, all believers, uh, from whatever background we may have come from, whatever nationality or ethnicity or former religious background, all who are sincere, true believers in Jesus Christ, to celebrate together what he's done for us. And we're going to do that this morning. I'd like to read what the Apostle Paul wrote about the Lord's Supper. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you'll see it on the screen. Paul the Apostle wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What that means is in a few minutes, if you choose to partake of the bread, the juice, you are making a visible proclamation that Jesus' death on the cross was for you. You, by faith, have received what he has done for you, that he is your Lord. It's a significant thing. It's a serious thing. So it comes with this warning. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We examine ourselves first to be sure that we have truly embraced the saving work of Jesus Christ. That we can genuinely say, Lord, you are my Savior, you are my Lord. Communion, furthermore, is a wonderful time to examine our lives, to make sure there's nothing standing in the way of our fellowship with God or with other believers in Jesus. Now, you do not have to be a member of our church to take communion here. All, all are welcome, even if it's your first day here. But in light of these words in 1 Corinthians, I do think it's important that you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And if you've never done that before, 
and believe that that is something you sincerely want to do, today would be a wonderful day to do that, to simply pray, acknowledge your sin, and ask him for his saving lordship in your life from this day forward. So we'll take a moment now to prayerfully examine ourselves in a, in a, a little period of silence. And then um, I'll invite you to, to join me in saying together uh, the Apostles' Creed. You'll see it printed on the screen. But first, let's pray together. Fathers, we come to take the Lord's Supper now. We ask that you would prepare us by the Holy Spirit, that we would take it in the way that is right in your eyes. Father, I pray it would result in renewal of faith, uh, in rekindling of love for you, and a re-acknowledgement of our need for you. I pray you would remind us of any sin to confess or of any person we need to forgive. And Father, for anyone here who's never truly become your child, your follower, by embracing by faith the work that Jesus has done, would you today bring that one to a point of saying, Lord, I believe, Lord, I receive. Make me your follower.